Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And on today's show, we're hanging out with Mike Portnoy, former Dream Theater drummer and, without even a hint of exaggeration, one of the most technically skilled drummers on this planet. True fact. Oh, boy. Thank you. True fact, man. Uh, I'm a big fan. I have been for decades. And, and Mike, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this show today. I really appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure, man. I love nothing more than talking about music and my favorite bands and my favorite albums, and my favorite songs. It's I could do that for days. So this podcast may go on for days. Well, you know, you came to the right place, man, because I could go for weeks. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Mike. In addition to your dream theater work, I was saying that that I'm a huge fan of the winery dog stuff that you did with Billy Sheehan and and Richie Cotts and like who knew Cotts and could sing like that. Yeah, I know. The, the, the yeah, what a band and, and Richie's Richie was uh, the big surprise for a lot of people with that band. Even for me, even before we started the Winery Dogs, I kind of just knew Richie as the guy that you know filled in and Poison, and the guy that filled in and Mr. Big, and didn't really know you know the level of his, uh, the extent of his, his incredible talents, especially his voice. Yeah, uh, but the range of the styles that he loves to play. So yeah, I mean, Winery Dogs is just so much fun. I love playing with both of those guys. Yeah, oh, that must have been great. That, that first record is, is just crazy good. Damage is awesome. I love the dying. It's just incredibly good stuff. So well, thank you. Oh, you're welcome, man. Mike, I know that you and uh, Derek Sherinian now formed a new group recently with Jeff Scott Soto, and, and I think Bumblefoot is involved in this as well. It's called Sons of Apollo. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what's going on with that? Yeah, that's uh, that's my late my latest band in a string of uh, eighty seven bands at this point or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, but Sons of Apollo is uh, the latest um, the latest band that I'm really focused on, pretty much for for the upcoming year. And myself and Derek uh, put it together, and, and Jeff Scott Soto and Bumblefoot, and Billy Sheen. It's it's an amazing lineup. It's kind of you know we were just talking about the Winery Dogs. Winery Dogs to me kind of like a super group for more classic rock yeah uh you know with with touches of blues and r&b and funk because richie has that that edge so winery talks was kind of that sons of apollo is more of a super group in the vein of hard rock and heavy metal and prog metal you know kind of if if you took rush and van halen and deep purple uh, you know threw it in a blender and you had the five of us shredding away uh, with great songs, great vocals. Um, it's just a, an amazing band and, you know, so excited to, to get it off the ground and hit the road with it in, in uh, 2018. We're just now, you know, waiting for uh, Jeff to finish up TSO over the holidays and once he's done with that, we can hit the road. So we hit the ground running in February and we already have tour dates, you know, all throughout the year, all throughout the world. So it's, it's going to be a, a fun ride. So I'm in Toronto, Mike. Are you guys coming up to Toronto at all? Uh, we plan on Toronto in probably April or May. The only North American dates that have been announced so far is a, a quick little run in February. Uh, then we have uh, other plans for March, but then we're going to do a more extensive U.S. and North American run in April and May. And I think I did see Toronto on the list. So awesome. fingers crossed. Very good. I will be there. That's great, man. Okay, so what do you say we get into your tunes? I've got your list here. Uh, your first song is A Day in the Life. Well, I, I mean, I could talk about the, the Beatles for, you know, 
this entire podcast. <laughs> our mutual, our mutual friend uh, JJ French, who, who connected us to do this. You know, JJ is, is is a Beatles fanatic as well, and he and I just talk Beatles all day long. And I have other Beatles friends like Chris Jericho and, and Charlie Benante. All we do is just geek out on the Beatles all day long. And <laughs> it's funny when we're talking talking today. Today is the, the anniversary of John Lennon's death. Yeah. Uh, I guess 30, 37 years now today. Yep. Uh, as you know, but yeah, I mean, look, the Beatles are, are my life to this to this day. They're still my favorite band of all time. They're the most influential band in my entire life. Um, they finished Sgt. Pepper. They they the final Sgt. Pepper session was April twentieth, nineteen sixty seven, which was the day I was born. So oh I was wow! Born. Uh, the day that they completed Sgt. Pepper. And so that's why I went with The Day in the Life, because, um, you know, if I had to pick one Beatles song, Sgt. Pepper was kind of just so uh, in sync with, with my life, you know, with with when I was born, and, and the Sgt. Pepper came out like six weeks later. And to me, A Day in the Life is just the track that, on the album that, you, you know, you're talking about, what was it, Make Your Hair, hair Stand, what did he say? Make Your Skin Vibrate. Yes, vibrating or, yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that kind of song with the orchestra swells in the middle and then the big final chord and it's a great example of john and paul collaborating and each having you know their moments and putting it together to make one song and you know it was just the ultimate uh, climax to what was what is in my opinion uh, you know maybe the greatest album ever made I, t- I, t- I totally agree they um I think that song is actually a composite of ideas that John and Paul had, right? Just like bits and pieces, and they—it's—it's it's like a Frankenstein song almost. Exactly. John John had the whole first part. I read the news today. Oh boy. Yeah. And Paul had the woke up, got out of bed, middle section, uh, and they they put them together, and you know they used that orchestral swell to to, to bring them together in the middle. Yep. And then after Paul's section, uh, they go into the whole. Uh, I went into a dream bridge, which is one of my favorite Beatles moments ever. The, uh, the, ah, that whole middle section that connects back to John's reprise. Uh, yeah, it's just an amazing example of how, you know, how they worked when they put their, their minds together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, uh, I think it was, was it George Martin's idea to bring in like five grand pianos at the end of that for that that crashing E chord that resonated through the end of the song. I don't know if it was George Martin, but it wouldn't surprise me because George was such a, an integral part to the production on all of those albums. You know, anytime you heard um, you know strings or, or pianos or you know something like Eleanor Rigby, which was basically just Paul, yeah, and then George Martin's orchestration. Um, uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if he suggested the piano, but I believe they're all hitting that chord simultaneously on multiple pianos. Yeah, yeah. And then the chord that lasts forever is just amazing. I mean, and then there's the inner groove thing that always scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. <laughs> the little backward sound effects thing that That's always right. scared the crap out of me. <laughs> Why is that? Because I, I had the same thing. It was very strange, right? Yeah. And you're turning up your, your stereo just to hear, to milk every last morsel of that final chord. Yeah. And then that inner groove thing comes on and scares the shit out of me. <laughs> this is the year of Pepper because this year marks its 50th anniversary. And, and the, I got the box set, and, and me and JJ talked about the, 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 the box set extensively. Uh, 
drums and the bass and you know a piano panned all the way to one side and it was all connected so if you yeah. bring that level up you're bringing up all those instruments up and down <laughs> well with the 50th anniversary remix they went back and they separated every one of those bounces so they actually were able to to mix it uh you know with every track isolated and having its own place in the mix it's, it's absolutely amazing oh that's great yeah well i mean it's, it, i think it was giles martin that did it did the remix yeah george's son yeah who also did all the, the love stuff uh but yeah this new sergeant pepper remix is is dare i say the you know the quintessential mix you know a lot of people for all those years you know were, were some people would argue for the mono mix. Some people would argue for the stereo mix. Personally, I'm always a stereo guy because I love the, the separation. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it, you know, when they announced that they were going to be remixing Sgt. Pepper for this 50th anniversary, it was almost like sacrilegious to even think about it. Yeah. But what they did here is just, they just enhanced it tenfold. It's just, it's it's amazing. It's, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Sgt. Pepper was already technical earlier. Technicolor, but this is like surround sound, <laughs> multi Technicolor. I mean, it, it's just incredible. JJ was on uh, a couple of the the episodes, and uh, his Beatles knowledge, man, is just like stratospheric. It's, it's... Yeah, yeah. He and I both just geek out about the Beatles all day long and yeah. try to stump each other with trivia and everything. And <laughs> we were at dinner a few weeks ago, and I did stump him. I stumped him, and he he couldn't even get the answer. So I was very proud of that. Oh, really? Oh wow! Yeah, that's a feat. Yeah, man. he'll never admit it, but everybody else who has <laughs> witnessed it. <laughs> that's great. All right, Mike, your next tune here is by the Who, and uh, it's from the Live at Leeds record. It's "We're Not Gonna Take It." Uh, See me, feel me, going into listening to you. We're not gonna take it. Not the Twisted Sister song. When I think about my childhood, I think about the Beatles, and I also think about the Who. Like Tommy, Tommy came out two years after I was born, came out in 69. And really, if, I mean, I picked, the, 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 the tracks I picked here to talk about are the final songs on Tommy. So I, I, I really wanted to represent Tommy because that album was so important to me as a child. It was, it was like a, the soundtrack to my childhood. But I went here with the Live at Leeds version just because I, Live at Leeds to me is, is you know the greatest live album ever. The energy that you that you feel coming out of the speakers when you listen to that album is just incredible. Oh, yeah. You could feel Keith Moon's energy, and Keith was was Keith is still one of my greatest drum heroes of all time. Really, uh, if not the biggest. Uh, yeah, his his personality uh, and and the way he played drums like a lead instrument, and yeah. the fact that he had this this amazing charisma that you couldn't take your eyes off him. It was such a huge influence for me. I mean, you know, the first time I set eyes on him was when uh, the Kids Are All Right movie came out. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was a kid still, so that was the first time I was able to actually see Keith. And to me, that was like my Ed Sullivan moment. That was the moment where I said, oh my God, that's what I want to do. I want to be a drummer like him. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, Live at Leeds, to me, is, uh, you know, the greatest live album ever. You have Keith going nuts on the drums and John Entwistle's bass playing, which is just so incredible. And you have all the improvisational elements, like the 15-minute version of My Generation. Yeah. Um, and then they put out the deluxe edition of Live at Leeds a few years ago, which has the entire Tommy on it as well. So yeah, it's it, massive. It made the greatest live album of all time even greater. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I've always loved uh, Young Man's Blues from that. Oh, yeah. You know, just Absolutely. you know what you're saying with the, the energy of that record coming through the speakers is just like, you know, it, it's, it's immense. I love that they split, uh, they panned the guitar and the bass. So you could really just hear John on one side and you could hear Pete on the other side. Yeah. You got Keith and, and Roger right up the middle. Yeah. And you just play that album loud. But yeah, Young Man's Blues is amazing on there. Um, and then the, the new version has... Uh, a quick one while he's away which is one of my favorite obscure tracks of theirs yes. kind of the very first mini opera they ever did Yeah, I did a, a Who tribute band many years ago it was me and Billy Sheehan uh, Paul Gilbert and Gary Sharon it was called Amazing Journey Yeah, and we pretty much did all of the Live at Leeds new version you know we did uh, all of Tommy we did Quick One we did Young Man Blues we did uh, you know all those tracks it's just that album energy and and you feel like you're at the show yeah it's it's an incredible well people call it the best live album you know in in rock history yeah i think it's up there i would have to say my top three would be live at leeds uh kiss alive yeah not even really a live album it was just such a significant uh, album for them and for me personally yeah uh and then maybe ufo strangers in the night which is a bit more obscure but one of those albums that like the live you know where a band, you look at a band's catalog and their greatest album is a live album, and that would be the case for, for UFO. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good call. Uh, the, the Kiss Alive record, I think that, you know, I was reading um, a couple of years ago that, that that entire record, I think, was made, you know, in the studio. in, in I think it was right. in, De- in Detroit, right? Well, that, that's, that's the story. That's the legend. <laughs> that's the, I think it is true. I think they've even admitted to it. I, I think the drums are pretty much live. Are they? Uh, I don't know if you could do much overdubbing with drums back. I, I could be wrong, but yeah, I know that it's definitely not a live album. Yeah, the no. audience is live. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah I, and I think that I think that only came to light because Stanley and Simmons finally admitted it and said, "Okay, yeah, it, it's actually not a live record," but they justified it by saying, "You, but know, you know what? No, so many live albums are, are you know, you, you would probably be incredibly disappointed to learn that, you know." So many live albums have, have overdubs and fixes and things oh, like yeah. that. I think Kiss Alive is probably an extreme case. And honestly, I could care less. To me, that album, you know, that that is my favorite early Kiss album. It pretty much sums up the first three albums. Uh, but it sounds better. You know, I, yeah. I, I never really liked the mix on the first two Kiss albums. No. You put it on now, the, the mix is horrible. Yeah. But those live versions bring those songs to life. So whether it's live or not, it doesn't matter to me. It, themselves would tell you that the first you know a couple of records just weren't produced with enough grit and didn't really kind of capture that hard edge that they had and, and until Alive came out you know they didn't I don't think they were really recognized for being the band that they wanted to be recognized for you know it's just being yeah, this no, kind that, of, was the, that was the one that changed everything for exactly them. yeah and then Destroyer came out and they went a completely different way with Ezrin right yeah but Destroyer Destroyer at least had a great production with Bob Ezrin yep um 
you know, and it's, that's just a classic album, you know, opening with Detroit Rock City and then King of the Nighttime World. And, and then, of course, Best blew them up with that album. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Kiss, like, like the Beatles, Kiss are, are one of my favorite all-time bands as well, but it's, it's you know, just 70s Kiss. They kind of lost me around 79 or so. But, you know, 74 to 78 are, you know, those those years are, are, are sacred to me. Those were, you know, they shaped me. You know, I saw Kiss for the first time at Madison Square Garden in 1977. Wow. And it was, you know, it was life-changing seeing, yeah. seeing them at that point uh, when they were just larger than life. And it was, it was amazing. I think they were probably at the height of their powers at that time, right? Yeah. In, yeah, in 77, you know, 76, 77. But, like, to see them at Madison Square Garden, you know, almost like a homecoming show for them must have been, like, fucking yeah. magical. It wasn't their first, like, I think they played Madison Square Garden for the first time earlier in the year, yeah. seven, and then they did came back in, in December and did a three-night stand there, and that was it. I mean, that was the height of Kiss mania. Oh, for sure. Uh, I remember going and going with my mom and smelling the pot smoke everywhere <laughs> and just seeing the big Kiss sign up there, you know, all lit up. It was just, it was a life-altering experience. Oh, for sure, man. A life-enriching experience, definitely. You're lucky that you saw that. That's fantastic. I I agree. I was a huge Kiss fan, Mike. Um, you know, as a kid, I think I was eight years old when I I got like Kiss Alive too, um, and went all the way back to the beginning and kind of you know moved forward through like Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, Love Gun, all that. Um, but then, you know, as well, I think Double Platinum came out, and then Dynasty and then well, solo albums, and I I loved three out of the four solo albums. I loved. Which one didn't you I love? Still, I still, okay, it's, it should be obvious. <laughs> Peter Chris. Does anybody like Peter Chris's song? No, this is weird. Very Chris. strange, right? I mean, Simmons is a strange one too. Of my, one of my great heroes, and I, I stand by him through thick and thin. But I, I just never got that album. No, me either. But yeah. to this day, I still listen to Ace, Gene, and Paul's. I, 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 <laughs> I love all three of those albums. To me, they, I was still on the Kiss train through the solo albums. And then Dynasty is where I kind of fell off. Yeah, and me too. from there, Ace and Peter left, and, you know, the magic was gone at that point. I was just having this conversation recently about the drop-off point as a Kiss fan, and, and for me it was unmasked. You know, Dynasty was, you know, songs like Charisma kind of kept me hanging on as a kid, you know, and, and Frelly had, I think, three tunes on that record that he was he was allowed to put on. And I was a huge Frelly fan. Um, but then Unmasked came out. Oh, right? Ace is my hero. Yeah, me too. I'd, I'd love Ace Frehley. And, uh, yeah, I, as a kid, I was fat. I was absolutely obsessed with Ace Frehley. Like, absolutely obsessed. But um, yeah, me too. I My nickname in, in elementary school was Ace. Are I you serious? And Peter Chris, you know, Peter Chris and Ringo, those guys were my heroes. John Bonham, Keith yeah. Moon. But some, for some reason, my nickname was Ace. All no throughout, like, elementary school. Even my teachers called me Ace. He's one example of where... You know, my, my love for him transcended the instrument that he played and that I played. It. You know, some of some of my biggest heroes aren't drummers. You know, Frank Zappa yeah. and Roger Waters, Pete Townsend, and Ace Frehley is, is on that list as well. Yeah. Wow. No. I, yeah. I was uh, I was absolutely obsessed with him. It must have been cool for you to meet him then eventually, right? Oh, amazing! I I, uh, I got to play with him and Peter together. Um, I, I was the musical director at Eddie Trunk's 30th anniversary. 
show. That's awesome. And I was the one that put together all the, the, the band members and, you know, got every, all the special guests up there. And, wow. And uh, I was able to, to play with Peter and Ace together. It was myself and Bumblefoot and Scott Ian and Frank Bello from Anthrax and, uh, and Peter and Ace. And it was their first time not only playing together, but it was their first time like seeing each other in like 12 years or so. Or so. Oh, wow. so it was pretty surreal to be standing there. Me and Frankie Bello was, were just standing there when, when they, when, uh, we were standing there talking to Peter yeah. when Ace walked in for the first time and, and, you know, we got to watch them see each other and hug each other for the first time in 11 or 12 years. And oh, wow. to get up there and play with them was, was one of the coolest experiences of my life. That is so great. Yeah. Okay, the uh, the next two. We were supposed to be talking about the Who, but man, <laughs> <I know. laughs> we got a nice little kiss, a little kiss segment in there as well. Well, that, you know that tends to happen on this show. We just kind of drift off when we we touch on a mutually agreeable band like Kiss. You know, I, I think I've done forty episodes of the podcast, and Kiss pops up on like probably a quarter of them. And they, you know, they're not on the original yeah. playlist. It's funny because you know, Kiss is, is always that band that that it's like a common touchstone that everybody can say. Yeah, I was a Kiss fan too. How about you know this album or that? Did you ever? Oh, go ahead. Did you talk to JJ about Kiss at all? Oh God, JJ yeah. I know he that. For Kiss, that's uh, a crazy story. I like. I was fascinated yeah. when he told me that story. He, you know, in the Wicked Lester days, he went and played in that loft on what was it like Fifty Third yeah. Street or whatever, and he, you know, conceivably could have been Ace Frehley, right? Yeah. I mean, not Ace Frehley, yeah. but like yeah. he he could have been Kiss's lead guitar player. A lot of people don't know that, and you know but that's a whole other story. That's that's for JJ to tell. Oh, totally. Yeah, but he well, he talked about it on his first podcast. But he, he's a, such a humble guy, right? He he just kind of glossed over it. But yeah, JJ is definitely uh, due for a book. He's full. He's one of the most storytelling people I've ever met. I mean, he's just filled with stories. So he's definitely due for a book. Yeah, I think it's not a biography per se, but I think he's writing a book about business that's coming out next year, right? Yeah. Yeah. But he's definitely. I mean, he could fill a few volumes with just his stories. He's the ultimate rock and roll storyteller. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, your next tune on your original playlist here, Mike, is uh, by David Bowie, and it's the tune that kicked it all off. It's uh, Space Oddity. Mm. Talk about uh, songs that make your skin vibrate. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's literally what this song does to me. I swear to God, when it, if it comes on the radio or comes up on my iTunes shuffle, the minute I just hear it fading in, I literally get chills, I get goosebumps. It's just one of those songs is just perfect. It's a perfect, perfect song. Yeah. Uh, the production and the, 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 the harmony and the, everything about it. And, and I remember hearing that song when I was a kid. Uh, I think it came out in 69 or 70, and I, I remember hearing it then. I was also a fan of the, the last song on that album. Uh, well, actually, that's not his debut album, but the last song in the Space Oddity album, uh, uh, Memories of a Free Festival. I was yes. also a fan of that song when yeah. I was a kid. But talking about Space Oddity, I mean, it's just, I get goosebumps. It's just incredible. And uh, I recently saw an amazing movie. Uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, the director, I think it's John, Jean-Paul Vallée. Yeah. I think that's his name. But he's uh, uh, his, his debut film is a movie called Crazy. Okay. And it, it used Space Oddity in the film, and it was just just so perfectly, perfectly set. You know, a, a mood, and I, I don't know. Bowie's, you know, Bowie's got a, a bunch of songs like that that are all time favorites of mine. Also, Life on 
Yes. Michael Mars is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. Uh, with Rick Wakeman on keyboards on that, and you know, the, you know, just the use of the cello and the orchestra and the, the composition on that, and then everything off of Ziggy Stardust. I love Ziggy, the whole Ziggy Stardust album, from from Five Years to Rock and Roll Suicide, from the start to finish. To me, it's a, a perfect album, one of my all-time favorites. Oh, for sure. So yeah, there's a lot of Bowie, a lot of Bowie I could talk about, but if I had to pinpoint one, Space Oddity is the one that just makes my skin crawl. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's a fantastic tune, obviously, and and like I said, that was the one that kind of kicked it off, and I think that was from the, his second record, right? It wasn't on his debut album, I don't think. Yeah, his debut album was, uh, I think it was just called David Bowie. Yeah, it was, and, yeah. Uh, it was a little bit more folkish. Very folkish, And then yeah. he came out, I think Space Oddity was his second album. Yeah. And then from there, you know, from there he went on to, you know, Ziggy and Diamond Dogs. And, oh. oh, Hunky Dory came before Ziggy. Yeah. Oh, Hunky Dory with, with Life on Mars, like we were just talking about. Yeah. The Man Who Sold yeah. the World came out before that. Like, that string, starting with The Man Who Sold the World all the way through to, like, Diamond Dogs, was just an incredible exactly. run. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's my Bowie period as well, for sure. Yeah, well, it's just... it's that's... Amazing. So speaking about Bowie, did you ever see the... Um, Wes Anderson film The Life The Life Aquatic. No. Oh yeah, with uh, with the whole, uh, with Bill Murray. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, the whole film has got um, this Portuguese acoustic flamenco player doing <laughs> Bowie covers. That's you know, right. Doing Life on Mars and Queen Bitch and Ziggy Stardust and you know all, all these songs on a flamenco Portuguese flamenco guitar. It's it's amazing. It's it's funny that and you. I think there, there's even a soundtrack. You get the, the Life Aquatic soundtrack and it has all those tunes. It's amazing. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I was watching that with somebody and probably right around the third tune, which might have been Queen Bitch, I, I kind of I thought, this soundtrack is like all Bowie, but it's it's like a weird kind of instrumental of Bowie songs. And, and he's, I, singing, he's singing the songs in Portuguese, too. Which is, <laughs> at first, it takes a while to figure out what, the hell, what song it is. Yeah, yeah. But he's doing like Moon Age Daydream and all these songs. It's awesome. Yeah, cool. and it's all Bowie all the way through the movie, which is just bizarre, because I don't think there's any other Bowie reference in the movie whatsoever, right? No, it's completely random. Yeah. The guy just keeps floating in and out of the scenes, <laughs> playing the songs, and yeah. it's totally random. <laughs> yeah, it's very strange. Yeah, David Bowie, man. That was a hard one. You know, these, these, these guys are are passing away, Tom Petty and, and, and everybody else recently. David Bowie, I think, was probably the hardest one for me. I was a huge, huge Bowie fan. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a tough one for me, too. I, I, I'll i be honest with you. Um, I was on stage in San Francisco with uh, Metal Allegiance yep. when the news broke, and I had a break in the set, and at that point, my drum tech ran over and showed me his phone with the news that Bowie had died. Mm. And, it, we, and then at that point, I ran over to a bunch of the guys in the band and showed them. This was mid-show. And we just got all choked up. And, and uh, at that point, our singer had to make an announcement during the show. And the whole room just like, oh, the whole mood just shifted. Yeah. But the story I'm thinking about, I've never even told anybody this, but uh, the next day I was flying home. Yeah. And I was listening to some Bowie just to, you know, because I was just really, really upset over it. And uh, Lady Stardust from, from the Ziggy album came oh, on. Oh, yeah. And I broke down. I broke down and cried like a baby, sitting there on an airplane by myself, yeah. crying like a baby. And I was like, man, this, this, one, this one stings. Yeah. It hurts. Yeah. I mean, like, Lennon, Lennon was, was brutal, and Dimebag was brutal. And, yeah. You know, there's been a lot of rock and roll deaths that really have been really hard, but Bo 
Yeah, I totally agree. It was a complete shock, and I didn't even know that he was ill. Um, you know, in no. typical Bowie fashion. And the album, his album came out, I think his album came out like two days before he died. Well, so and there was this big I, promo about his new album, and then boom, he dies two days later. I, th- I think that he, that was, that was a, cons- I think he did that on purpose, right? Did he not, Blackstar yeah. basically was like a goodbye to his fans, and he taught, well, yeah. as well as he could, he kind of timed that as his kind of swan song. Which is just fucking incredible yeah. if you think about that. Yeah, incredible. But you know, talk about like, well, my dad, my dad told me a story about seeing Bowie on the Ziggy Stardust tour, and I think it was at Radio City Music Hall or oh. Carnegie Hall, and I think it was the last night on the Ziggy tour, and at the end of Rock and Roll Suicide, somebody ran out on stage and stabbed Bowie, and oh. then all of a sudden the curtain just fell and closed, and the house lights came on. And, and my dad was saying everybody was sitting there in total confusion. Wow. Like thinking that, that he was just killed on stage. Jesus. But it was part of the show. I mean, I mean, so that was like Bowie's, the way that Bowie had that master plan to, to close the Ziggy tour like that. That's to right. everybody out. I think it's pretty amazing that he also had that insight with his last album to time it with his death. I mean, it's, it's, it's like the ultimate artistic, you know, statement to, to yeah, exactly. I mean, can you can you do it in a more grandiose fashion? Like you really can't. But you know, it, it's it's that's typical David Bowie, and and it's things like that that just made him so incredibly just influential. He's he just it's it's hard to it's hard to verbalize. Yeah. You know, the changes that he went through through his career too, and the Im- different images, and you know, from Ziggy to Diamond Dogs to Aladdin Sane, and then he went through his whole Germany you know, Brian Eno period, yeah. and then, then reinvented in the 80s, and then he yeah. did the pin machine, and he was just constantly evolving and changing, and uh, not only his music, but his image, and, and yeah. yeah, one of a kind, I mean, really, one yeah. of those iconic, iconic uh, artists. Absolutely. It, it would be one thing for him to kind of reinvent himself constantly, but he excelled at it every time he did it, and it, it was almost like... Yeah. He kind of knew what people wanted before they knew what they wanted, you know? He wasn't following any trends. He was creating them. Yeah. And he just, he, he killed it every time. I mean, it, and he was taking, you know, big risks. I mean, when he released, uh, you know, things like Modern Love and Let's Dance and, and, and China Girl, I mean, you know, he was, you know, he's a pop star, but he, he pulled it off yet right. again. You know, it's just so impressive. Yeah, that was a tough one when Bowie passed for sure. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's not going to slow down either because, uh, you know, all of our heroes are in that 60 and 70 year old range. And, you know, you look just the, the, the list of people that we've lost in the last couple of years, um, you know, Keith Emerson, Greg Lake, yep. uh, Glenn Fry, now Tom Petty, Eddie. Malcolm Young, Walter Becker. Yeah. Uh, the list goes on and on and on and on. And, and it's not going to slow down because they're all getting to be that age. Yeah. And I just think about, you know, like in the coming, not to be morbid, but in the coming 10 years or so, yeah. you know, guys, you know, guys like Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney and Ringo and, you know, it's going to happen. Elton John yeah. is just inevitable because of the age. Uh, so it's, you know, we got some big ones coming, except for Keith Richards. Keith will, will, will outlive everybody. <laughs> He's like a cockroach, man. He's like, we have to worry about the world we're leaving behind for Keith Richards, I think. Yeah. 
he's, he's just, which is crazy because he he was uh, you know he's the hardest rocker, hardest living rocker of all of them. He's one of smoking two packs of cigarettes a day, shooting heroin, and washing it down with a bottle of Jack Daniels. Yeah, and yet he'll live forever. Exactly. I that's... guess Lemmy was like that too, but but we we lost Lemmy, so obviously nobody's immortal. Yeah, I know that's the irony with Richards for sure is that like he's just absolutely invincible. Seemingly, it's it's crazy. <laughs> You know, you make a good point there. It's it's going to be, you know, with Petty and everybody recently, it's it's going to be accelerated. It's not going to be, you know, here and there. I think that now everybody's at that age where you're going to start seeing it a little bit, or a lot more. And uh, I just had this conversation. Oh, These last two years, it's been like that. Yeah, and it's just going to get worse, I think, because, you know, we have guys like the, the Stones and the Beatles and, and even Zeppelin and those guys now who, you know, are kind of getting to that age. And you know, like you said, not to be morbid, but there's going to be some tough times ahead to deal with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, you I, know, the, the, the music lives forever, but uh, you know, the musicians don't. So you gotta yeah. appreciate them and, and give them their love and their respect now while they're still here with us. Yeah, who's going to be your toughest one, Mike? I have one in my mind. Well, I mean, I think McCartney. You know, I, I remember. Yeah. You know, it's funny that we're talking today, which is December eighth, and the anniversary of John Lennon's death. Which I think still to this day was the hardest rock and roll loss, at least in my life. Yeah. Um, I think you know the day that McCartney goes is going to be that's going to be brutal. That's uh, I don't know. I can't think of anybody that would hit me harder than that. I mean Ringo as well, obviously. But you know, you think Paul McCartney's going to be around forever? You don't picture a world without Paul McCartney. Exactly. So that would be my answer. Who's yours? Yeah. No, McCartney's the same. You know, I, I was having this conversation again recently with somebody that. He, in my mind, is the most, and I've said this before on the show, he is the most prolific songwriter in the history of, you know, modern music. I, I, I fully believe yeah, that. absolutely. And so, you know, it's yeah. going to be a, a real, you know, watershed moment when the world is without Paul McCartney. It's going to be really, really difficult. No, I can't, I can't even imagine it. But then again, who would have thought of a world without John Lennon? And he's been gone for 37 years now. It's crazy. True. And the sad thing is that George... Uh, you know, there's certain days where George is my favorite Beatle, and it, sometimes it's I, I think, oh my God, it's it's crazy that he passed away. I, I don't want to say he didn't get the attention that John got, and John was killed in such a, a shocking way that yeah. it was just that was so monumental because of the you know the way it happened. Yeah. But when George went, uh, you know, I guess we all knew he was sick, mm -hmm. um, so I guess it was a little more expected. But it was it's still uh, I still don't think he got the credit. I don't want to say credit. What's the word? I don't think he got the the, the attention or whatever appreciation that he should have because I think because I think losing him was also monumental. You know, any any of the four Beatles. I mean, they are what created modern music and rock. Oh music. yeah, yeah. Uh, a world without any of the four of them is just you know it's hard to imagine. Yeah, no, it's it's that's going to be tough for sure. Well, let's hope that uh, McCartney takes some tips from Richards. Maybe sticks around a little longer. Yeah. <laughs> um, next tune, my friend, is by Yes, and it's a great one. It's Heart of the Sunrise from Fragile. Well, I guess we're moving away from my early classic rock influences and now, you know, moving into the more progressive side, which is a huge part of my background as well. I ended up, you know, forming Dream Theater and, and, and playing progressive music for over 30 years at this point. So, yeah. you know, there was a point in my childhood when I started to explore some of the more progressive bands. And Yes was one of the biggest, along with Rush. Yes and 
Rush to me were the, were the ones that just changed me as a musician. And I just exploded listening to this progressive rock movement. And, uh, you know, other bands like Genesis and King Crimson, of course, as well. But, I mean, for the sake of picking this list and picking just five songs, I went with Yes is Heart of the Sunrise just because it's a, a great example of virtuoso playing and absolutely epic composition. Yeah. And the story has it, the story has it that they wrote this in one day on the day that Rick, Rick Wakeman auditioned for the band. Really? When they were doing the Fragile album. Uh, yeah, I guess they, they were doing the Fragile album and Steve Howe had just joined the band. Uh, no, I guess, the, uh, no, Tony Kay had just left the band. Okay. Rick Wakeman was auditioning and the story has it that they jammed on Heart of the Sunrise and wrote that and I think is um, roundabout as well in, in wow. one day. Just, Holy crap. Which is unbelievable because Heart of the Sunrise is, is so incredibly complex. Yeah. And uh, the playing is incredible and the composition is all over the place with these different themes and motifs coming in and out and interweaving with each other. Yeah. But uh, they were, to me, the ultimate example of uh, you know a, a progressive rock super group. And this lineup, the lineup that was only on Fragile and Close to the Edge, yep. which was Bill Bruford, Chris Squire, John Anderson, Steve Howe, and Rick Wakeman. Yep. I mean, that is an all-star lineup. Oh, yeah. And they only made two albums with that lineup, but both of those albums are absolute masterpieces. I mean, Close to the Edge is probably my favorite Yes album, but I think Heart of the Sunrise might be my favorite Yes song. Yeah, yeah. It's that, and I can't believe that they wrote that and Roundabout in one day. Yeah, like the first day that they played with Rick. Holy shit, that's unbelievable. I didn't yeah. know that. Wow, yeah, fantastic tune, good pick, man. And then, I mean, I I, I, I shouldn't blow over Rush so quickly. I mean, I, I, Yes is the, the, the band and the song that I put on this list, but I, I can't I can't possibly uh, underestimate like the, the impact that Rush had on me as well, like all throughout my teenage years. After I got through my Kiss and Ramones and Sex Pistols phase, yeah. that's when I discovered progressive music and, and Rush just turned my world upside down and Neil became one of my biggest drum heroes and introduced me to Odd Time Signatures and got me interested in playing the big kit yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So I, I, I can't uh, possibly not mention the impact that, that they had on me during that period as well. You know, I've said to people before that, like you, I went through that phase of, you know, the Kiss phase, and, and for me, it was it was like, you know, Motley Crue and Metallica and Iron Maiden and stuff like that. Um, friends of mine were Rush fans, and I never really kind of maybe had the intellectual bandwidth to appreciate Rush, because I kind of wanted my rock to be dumb, you know? I wanted it to be like... It, it, I like both. I, I, I honestly could sit and listen to, you know, the Ramones, and I could sit there and listen to, to Rush and, and, and have genuine love for both. Yeah. Uh, that's why I ended up playing in a band like Dream Theater, and I also ended up playing in a band like Twisted Sister. Yeah. Who would have ever thought that the same guy could do both? But well, you know, I, to me, music is music. Yeah, yeah, and I was going to ask you about that too, about the Twisted Sister thing. I, I think that's so cool that you filled in for Peril, you know, it, it, for the European festivals. I thought that was fantastic. Um, the Rush thing, you know, I kind of kicked myself for not being a little bit more open-minded and listening to Rush as, as, a, as a younger kid. I'm a huge fan now, love the band, but, you know, when I was a kid... Do they you just, play an instrument? Yeah, I play guitar. Because I, I think most of the people that gravitated towards Rush were, were musicians. I mean, oh, yeah. to me, it was, 
Yeah. I, I, maybe if you, I was wondering if you played the instrument just because maybe if you didn't, maybe that was part of the reason you didn't get it, you know, See, back that's then. A, that's, I don't a, know. that's a good point, though, Mike, because I only started playing when I was 21. You know, and when I was into all these other bands, like the the less intellectually sophisticated bands, um, I wasn't playing an instrument. So that's a really, really good point. Right. Well, that's that's how I gravitated towards Rush and Yes, is I was, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 years old. And at that point, I was wanting to become a better drummer. And I wanted to learn more. And I wanted to learn, learn, learn. Who's the best drummer out there? Who's the best bass player? What band has the best musicians? Yeah. And that's why I gravitated and discovered the, this progressive music because I was at just a point in my life where I just wanted to hear the best musicianship possible. And then ultimately we ended up forming Dream Theater, which was kind of like we were that kind of band. We were yeah. trying to take each instrument as far as it can go, but that was all modeled after bands like Rush and Yes. But we were just doing it in in the Metallica era. Yeah, yeah, which was was awesome though. You guys were almost like the kind of harder rock version of Yes and Rush. I thought. Well, that's what we were trying to do because by the time we formed Dream Theater, you know, in the '80s, and then we kind of broke in the '90s. You know, Yes and Rush were not doing that kind of stuff at all. So we were trying to fill a void for that kind of acrobatic musicianship, mm-hmm. but with the heavy edge of Metallica and Iron Maiden. And, you know, bands like that, trying to combine the two, yeah. like a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. <laughs> <laughs> you got metal in my frog. No, you got frog in my metal. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, having said that, what was it like now to flip over to a band like Twisted Sister and play in that band? Well, I, I always had an appreciation for everything. You know, here we are talking about Russian yes but you rewind this conversation 10 minutes earlier and we're talking about Kiss and, and the Beatles and the Who so I was always just a music fan so that meant even though I was playing this complex music with Dream Theater I still listened to Twisted Sister I was you know I was going to see them in the clubs on Long Island when I was a kid and I cool. loved them yeah. um, so I was able, I, you know, I'm able to have an appreciation for all kinds of music all across the board and that goes for my taste as a listener, but it also goes for my, you know, abilities as a drummer to be able to, you know, kind of be a chameleon and, and do these different things and play the most complex music on earth with Dream Theater, but then yeah. go up there and just play these hard rock, heavy metal anthems with, with Twisted Sister or go play with Avenged Sevenfold or, or, you know, all these different things I've done through the years. Um, it's kind of showing my love for, for music in general, you know, I, 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 you can love Twisted Sister and love Dream Theater. <laughs> you oh, know, you can do both. Yeah, for, absolutely, for sure, and I certainly do. I was just thinking, like, you know, as a as a drummer playing highly complex pieces in Dream Theater, and then playing not so complex pieces in Twisted Sister because the style's completely different. You know, that must have yeah, been. But I love both. It's it's an easy it's an easy shift for me. Yeah. Just because I love them both. Yeah. That's awesome. Very cool. And and honestly, uh, when I came on board with Twisted, you know, filling in for a, a drummer that's passed away, I, I had done a similar thing years earlier with Avenged Sevenfold. So this was actually, you know, my second time yeah. jumping into an established band, filling in for a drummer that's passed away. So, you know, when I did it with Twisted, I, I kind of <laughs> had already done that once yeah. before. So, um, you know, I knew the emotions involved. 
and I knew that I needed to be very respectful yeah. uh, to the drum parts that existed before me. You know, it was the same with Avenged, and it was the same with Twisted. In both cases, I had to. I came in, and I wasn't trying to be Mike Portnoy and get the attention and put the attention on me. And you know, I had to put my entire history aside and come on board and respect uh, their history yeah. and their drummer and their music. And uh, it was easy for me to do because I, you know, I, I'm a fan of, of, I'm a fan and, and I love these guys and, you know, they become friends of mine. So, uh, you know, I, I did it with so much love and respect uh, in both cases, both Avenged and Twisted. Yeah, I, you know, and I think that's fantastic that you did that because you could have easily gone in and, as you said, been Mike Portnoy, the, the dream theater, you know, juggernaut and and not, you know, had that level of respect. And I think it's fantastic that you did that. Well, I, I you know, like I said, it's out of love and, and, and respect. So and yeah. I'm a fan. I'm, <laughs> there's a picture in my high school yearbook uh, of me wearing a Twisted Sister shirt in no. my high school <laughs> yearbook. So, yeah. Does French know so, about that? Life, life has a funny way of of uh, throwing you the unexpected things when you least expect it. Have you, have you showed that picture to Johnny French? Yeah, I have. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so your last tune, my friend, is Radiohead, and it's Paranoid Android. Well, I wanted to get something on this list that was more modern. Yeah. Uh, and to me, Radiohead's OK Computer album, which came out, 20 years ago now back in 1997 to me that was like that's the Sgt. Pepper for the next generation I mean I think it was such a a sonically and compositionally challenging and deep album you know the the composition is incredible and the production is incredible and the soundscapes and the experimentation but it's also filled with beautiful songs I mean Karma Police is just Oh, you know, oh, yeah. perfect song. Yeah. Uh, but the song I pick, pick here is Paranoid Android just because to me that is like the Bohemian Rhapsody for, for you know, for this generation. Yeah. It's just, it's, you know, multi-part, you know, sweet with all these different sections and twists and turns and, yeah. um, you know, it, it, it's very much a progressive song but for a more modern alternative style yeah I like that you, you you went with the less obvious choice you know you mentioned Karma Police and I think a lot of people you know would have picked that tune from from OK Computer but Paranoid Android's a bit more of a deeper cut well Karma Police is like I mean if you're looking at uh, I don't know well I like I chose a day in the life of a Sergeant Pepper yeah uh, so Paranoid Android is kind of like the, the day in the life for, for, for OK Computer yeah it's, album karma police is more like i was gonna pick a hit song off sergeant pepper but really there aren't any hit songs of sergeant <laughs> pepper um i don't know with a little help of my friends maybe or getting better yeah but uh another one of my favorite tracks on, on okay computers is exit music from a film which yes. is so another one of those songs where you talk about makes your skin vibrate yeah that's one of those type of songs yeah uh, i listen to exit music for a film and it just it makes my skin crawl. It gives me goosebumps. And it's just got such a mood. Yeah. And the way it's written and the melodies and the chord progressions, just incredible, incredible. You know, and that's not and just... I, so go ahead. Well, just, I was going to say, OK Computer is just, to me, a perfect album. It's in my top 10 of all time. Oh, really? And, uh, you know, 
I love I love the Benz, which they made b- before it yeah. uh, as well. To me, the Benz is like rubber sole to <laughs> you know OK Computer, which is like Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, you know. And, but and the, the, the crazy thing though is that the Radiohead went so off the rails yeah. since then. And there's some, there's some cool stuff on Kid A, and there's some st- cool stuff on some of the other albums, but. Uh, I mean, OK Computer to me is just a perfect album, and there's 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 a few others in modern times that that hit me that way. I think Muse Muse's Absolution yeah. is another album which I think is a perfect album, and uh, Chris Cornell's I think it was his first solo, solo album, Euphoria Morning. Yeah, is another one of those albums where oh god, every song is just perfectly written, and so there's been a few modern masterpieces in my book, and those would be a, a couple that. that I was going to ask you what your favorite Radiohead record was. In Rainbows, for me, that was a little bit later on, but I actually really liked that one. They lost me. To be honest with you, they lost me by then. Because I, really? I think the difference is, and I don't want to be overly critical, because I can't I can't tell you how much I love Radiohead and, and the, the earlier albums, how much they mean to me. So I hate to be so critical of the later albums, but I mean, if I'm going to be honest with you, yeah. to me, they just sound like... Uh, digital exploration you know it sounds yeah. like Tom York or Johnny Greenwood just you know having fun with drum machines and, and digital equipment whereas you know OK Computer and the Benz to me sound like a band yeah. you can hear all three guitars playing you can hear the drums and the bass they sound like a band that were writing good songs as a band and yeah. I could be wrong but just my my you know the, 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 the vibe I get is the, the later albums that followed were more just like Tom York you know sonic exploration and, and more you know le- less emphasis on the song writing and the band composition and the band performance yeah no I get that my, just my vibe no you know what Mike I get that too because I think about bands like um Caliphone, if you've heard of them and they're just kind of more focused on like sonic experiments almost like Wilco right which I have never wow. ever I've, I've never been a big fan of of all the sonic experimentation all that stuff because it takes away from the song in my opinion and you know to your point I think about the bends and it kicks off with like Planet Telex which is in my opinion an amazing song I love that song it's one of my favorite Radiohead tunes yeah so yeah I love every song on the bends yeah absolutely yeah you're right I, you know I think that they're more song focused I think that you know Kid A and and I'm not even familiar with some of the records that, that came after that for that reason because they kind of lost me with just all this all over the place experimentation. But the in Rainbows, I mean, maybe the first two tunes aside, you know, the songs seem to be a lot better for me. Well, yeah. I to, maybe I'll have to give it another listen. I, I, I kind of fell off. Uh, I fell off at that point. Yeah. But yeah. I, actually, I love their latest album. Their latest album to me is their strongest album uh, in a long time. Actually, the, the uh, Moonshake Pool album. Yeah, but if we're talking about this kind of this this type of album, I really do want to give another plug to the Chris Cornell album Euphoria Morning. Which, yeah. God, I, I don't know if you know if you're familiar with that album. Yeah, man, Sun it, Shower's it, on that, right? Up there with OK Computer. Yeah. What's that? Is Sun Shower on that? Uh, I don't think so. I don't know. No, Sun Shower's not on it, but it's got a Can't Change Me and Follow My Way. Oh my God, what a song! Okay. Uh, Moonchild and it, it's. It's as perfect of an album as OK Computer, and it was Chris working with um, Alan Johannes, I think his name is, and okay. uh, uh, oh god, what was her name? She was the the bass player for um, Alan Johannes and, and uh, Natasha Schneider. They were both in the band Eleven. 
Okay. Uh, which was a band with, with uh, the original drummer from the Chili Peppers. What was his name? Uh, Jack. Mm. God, I, I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head. But anyway, they, it was basically Chris Cornell teamed up with, with Alan and Natasha from Eleven, and they mm-hmm. were you know pretty much co-writing the songs with them. And if you don't know the album, I highly recommend it. It's 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 as perfect as OK Computer. Really? I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, it's amazing. It's yeah. an amazing album with a lot of those twists and turns. Like we're talking about Bowie earlier, now like you know songs like Life on Mars and and Space Oddity, you know, were compositionally so unique. I think this this Cornell album, every song is like that as well. You know, you never know where the chord progression is going to go or where the melody is going to go. It goes to the least expected places compositionally, yeah. which I love. I love when artists are creating brand new twists and turns that you've never heard before. See, I love that too. And, and that's one thing that I like uh, about Radiohead the most, I think, is that you you, you know there's going to be a change, but oftentimes when you listen to music, uh, if you're really musically inclined, you know what the, what the chord is going to be when the change comes. You know, you can right. almost say, okay, they're going to go to a D. But then, you know, Radiohead, I find, is really great at surprising you when that change comes. Totally. So I'm going to really totally. like this record. And that's what, yeah, this Chris Cornell album is very much like that. It's it's so unique and challenging, and, and yeah, I couldn't recommend it higher. It's another one that's in my top ten of all time. Nice. I'm gonna check that out for sure. So, Mike, that is the end of your list, man. That, that was a, that was a fantastic list and a great chat. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Yeah. Like I said, I I love I love talking music. I could do the same thing for TV or movies or <laughs> you know <laughs> you know I'm, I'm just still as much of a fan as anybody else, and, and I just could talk about that kind of stuff for days. Yeah. Well, listen, I know that you're a super busy guy, but if you want to do another one of these, I would be thrilled to have you back on the show, my friend. All right. Well, we'll, we'll catch up at another time. We'll knock out another list of something. We'll pick yeah. up something and talk about it because, yeah, yeah, it's been my pleasure. Well, thank you. And, and give me another list, you know, um, it could be Kiss, it could be anything else, whatever you want to do, then uh, uh, shoot me an email and we'll we'll do another episode, man. Okay. To be continued. To be continued, sir. Absolutely. All right. Well, best of luck to you and uh, Sons of Apollo. When you come through Toronto, I'm going to watch for you, and I'm definitely going to check out that show, okay? Awesome. I look forward to it. All right, man. Take good care. Thanks a lot. I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. Thank you, man. Okay. This has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Mike Portnoy. Until next time, take good care, folks. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subway, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.